Okay, so uh, we are beginning Perkashvi. In mine it says Bimchitza the Inyanea about Mechitzot. It's not <clears throat> nowadays if you had something about Mechitzot, it would be talking about the height of the Mechitza and the Bet Knesset and uh, things like that, but that's not what he's talking about. <clears throat> okay. So there's a lot of mention in the Midrashim and Agadot and also in the Gemara that there are some of the Nevi'im that see, perceive Hashem from uh, as behind many mechitzot, and there are some who perceive Hashem as behind less, based on their closeness to Hashem and the level of nevuah. Adshamru Moshe Rabbeinu Olav Shalom, Hashem Yitparach Mechayim Mechitza Achat Behira, Klomar Mazira. So uh, uh, to the point that they said that Moshe Rabbeinu saw Hashem from behind one mechitza, which was uh, bright. Behira means clear or means bright, right? So he's saying, meaning bright. Masira, Masira's Zohar is brightness. Vu Omram is Tekel Bas Migra, very famous, the, you know, the clear or the uh, translucent or the uh, lit up um, uh, mirror. It means like, a, not a mirror, because a mirror shows you yourself, meaning like a uh, uh, wall. But it's uh, but he saw through that. So he says that's the um, the name of the uh, type of a mirror that's made from a bright substance, right? Um, like a kind of a uh, precious uh, jewel or or glass, like we learn in the end of Masechet Kelim. Okay, so he's saying to you that it's talking about some kind of a material, a material that is translucent and allows light in, right? That's bright, allows for brightness and light to pass through, but doesn't, um, doesn't block vision, but isn't direct vision either. Meaning if you see something through glass, the light travels through, the glass, but it's not the same as seeing it directly without the glass, even though it's pretty close, right? If you look outside and you see the moon versus if you step out from the window versus step outside and look at it, there is a difference, right? The, the window will, make, will let most of the light through, but not all of the, uh, it won't be exactly the same, okay? So that's the so the obviously the question is like uh, what is the relevance of this to anything that we talked about up till now? But okay, let's trust the process and assume it's going to become clear because up till now we've been talking about character perfection and then we talked about the balancing of the personality and then in the last parak we started talking about um, we started talking about the difference between mishpatim and chukim. And what we suggested in terms of explaining that is that the mishpatim, 
the mitzvot where you shouldn't desire uh, the wicked uh, side, you shouldn't desire to violate them naturally, is, the, is in the case where the violation or the limitation of the mitzvah is against doing something which is uh, socially or psychologically repulsive, meaning socially or psychologically unhealthy. So therefore you shouldn't be attracted to it. But chukim that are teaching you ideas, basically are teaching you uh, knowledge of God, so it should, your, your, your choice of them shouldn't be based upon any psychological or instinctual or, uh, you know, factor, because then it would just make it a, uh, I don't eat pork because it's not healthy. Because it has too much fat, it has this or that. It doesn't have anything to do with, uh, with an idea or, uh, meaning the idea of not being attracted to an excess of food, that's a matter of psychology or not being attracted to an excess of any, in any of the midot, that's a, that's a matter of, uh, that's a matter of psychology and psychological health, right? We would say a person's an addict, a food addict, uh, alcoholic, uh, any kind of addict. So it's unhealthy, unbalanced, right? But that's not the reason why somebody uh, observes kashrut. There's a higher purpose uh, in it. It's a chok actually, because it's, uh, it's teaching you something higher. It's teaching you to make your eating instrumental to a purpose beyond itself. That's a different thing than just the psychological factor of balance. Um, so, so the Rambam already opens sort of the gateway into thinking about the relationship between our behavior and knowledge of God by introducing the distinction between chukim and mishpatim, which on the surface appeared to be a uh, non sequitur or a detour, seemed to be a detour off of the main uh, discussion. But he had spoken already in Perik, um, Perik Chamishi about all of the uh, utilizing or uh, 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 directing all of one's actions towards a single purpose, which is the purpose of knowledge of God. And then he's basically talking about, in the previous parak, how there are two kinds of activities that, that, in, uh, that get involved with that. One is where, the, um, one is where there's a psychological imbalance. It's a matter of psychological health. Uh, <clears throat> um, and and uh, the uh, state of the psyche uh, which is um, which is the midot and the deod in general, but then there's an issue of okay, once you have a balanced and healthy psyche, what are you utilizing that? What towards what end are you uh, mobilizing that? Because that's that's not an end in itself, and that was the uh, that's really I think why he then brings in the distinction between chukim and mishpatim because that seems to be what they speak about. In other words, the mishpatim are more. Um, in the realm where balance is the key, chukim are more in the realm where there's a higher idea being taught or imparted by the mitzvah. And now we get into the idea of what, what ultimately holds a person back from knowledge of God and how there are different levels and different mechitzot through which we perceive something. So if you think about, like, let's say when uh, you go to the doctor for your eye doctor for your glasses and they show you something through like a whole bunch of those le- fake lenses thingies, and then they take a couple of them away and they say, is this better, is this better? Which one is better? Was that clearer? Was that less clear? No, and, and what looks brighter to you and clearer to you is like closer to the correct prescription. I don't know if you wear contacts, Jordan, or not, but do you? Okay, yeah, because otherwise might not relate to what I'm talking about with, uh, okay, yeah, okay. So, um, so. Uh, Oh, okay, yeah, so you know the dr- drill. Is this better? Is this better? And, um, 
And so, it, and light is actually a factor, meaning if it looks blurry or it looks um, also uh, darker, it'll look brighter if it's, it's better. So that, that shows that it's closer to what you need for your eye to be able to see. So the idea is that you're, what we see through, um, through things. In other words, we're seeing through, not just th- through our eyes, but we're seeing through also whatever is in front of our eyes. So that includes if you're wearing glasses, that would be glasses. If you're looking through a fog, if you're looking through a dirty window, as um, here oftentimes happens because there's so much construction going on that there's a lot of dust on my uh, car windshield and I'll be driving and I'll be like, wow, you know, it's very, it's kind of like, not as light out as I thought, or it's not as sunny out as I thought. And then I'll just make the windshield wipers go and I'll realize it was just because there was a lot of dust caked onto the windshield and it made it look darker. Um, happens pretty regularly here, actually. We just decided to leave our car dirty all the time because it was too much. It's a lot of effort to keep the outside of the car clean here with all the dust going, uh, flying around all the time. In any case, this is the this is the the intent of this idea of the um, the clear glass or the clear uh, material. He said there's two types of things. There's intellectual uh, uh, perfections and there's a character like we talked about before, right? These are both called midot, um, perfections of a midah. And uh, there, there's, uh, there's, there's perfections of midot or deficiencies and there's perfections of the mind or deficiencies, Okay. We discussed these already in the fourth chapter. So the the thing is that any deficiency in the perceiver is going to be a deficiency in the relationship with God because our relationship with God comes from knowledge of God. So therefore, to the extent that our apparatus for perceiving God is, uh, is beset by uh, various deficiencies, so it's going to be a deficiency. In, it's like, you know, if you use a telescope that uh, has uh, all kinds of limitations, so then what you're able to perceive is going to be Less now, there could be different kinds of deficiencies in a telescope. It could be that the deficiency is in the um, in the actual component that takes in visual information, meaning the let's say the level of uh, pixels or whatever. I don't even know. What, I think that's what you call it still, right? Um, the the pixels in the uh, in the camera. So, you know, what, this, what it used to be, if you look at cameras from the olden days versus today, the level of clarity just of the picture really is different. Um, now you have an incredible ability to uh, capture uh, a clear picture through video and through, um, and through photos, uh, much, much more than you maybe had in the, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago or even a decade ago. I think they're constantly constantly increasing that, uh, the accuracy of that. That's one kind of a, uh, that's one kind of a, um, 
of a deficiency in a camera, but another one, another deficiency in perception is, let's say the camera doesn't focus on the correct, let's say you have a satellite that they put out in space, but it doesn't focus on the right things. So it might, it might have a very, very accurate ability to take in information, but imagine if the satellite, instead of focusing on the, uh, on, let's say it was a satellite that was supposed to look at some galaxy and it just zeroed in on one corner of that galaxy and didn't see the, the whole galaxy or zeroed in on the space in between the bodies of you know the stars that you wanted to look at but didn't look at the stars or zeroed in on one star at, to the exclusion of others or whatever. That would be an issue of where's the camera focusing? So that's a different kind of a, of a, uh, uh, a deficiency, right? Um, that's, yeah, what did you want to add? You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, this is not, um, you, we're, we're not in a... Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming it's like a like an like intellectual dullness. Um, so that's not something that would classically you know, qualify as one of the midot. Uh, you got some midot. Uh, it's one of the it's one of the malot asichriot. My my question is, whereas most of the midot can be uh, can be cultivated and can be refined, mm-hmm. uh, there there is like a general template that we're all given at birth. Uh, and I would imagine, knowing that we're going to get into Nibuana, most people uh, are not privy to that, you know, maximum potential type of uh, uh, intellectual capabilities that, that would enable them to reach certain levels. Okay, so what? That's just the way it is. You're going to be Albert Einstein? Stephen Hawking? No, so there you go. Neither me neither. We're not going to be on that level, so we we know that we have a limitation. That's all. It's not. That's just the reality. Meaning, obviously, a great genius is going to understand more about God than I am. So, uh, so that's just the way it is. I like what my my teacher Rabbi Chait used to say, though. He said a very good observation. I think I've shared it with you guys before, but I like it. It it it, it was it was something I found to be a compelling point. He said many people think they have to be a great genius. In order to understand Torah, in order to have chidushim in Torah, they have to be a great genius, and therefore they're always looking to be original and to be, you know, and to be different because they, you know, and 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 they're feeling that well, I can't really be original because I'm not smart enough and so on. And uh, the person who's a great genius is so much further ahead than I am. And he said, I have news for you. From the perspective of Hashem, you and the great genius, you both don't know anything. So you're pretty much even. From your perspective. You feel like, oh, that person knows more than me, but it's totally relative because, in the ultimate, from the ultimate perspective, both of them don't know anything. So it's okay. Don't look, if you look from the absolute, it is what it is. Um, even Moshe Rabbeinu has sees himself as knowing more, a lot less than what he actually knows. Meaning, what he, to us, he's the great, the greatest mind that ever lived, but to him, he sees a vast ocean of the things he doesn't know, and that's pretty much characteristic of all great, truly great chachamim, that they're going to see what they don't know as being vast relative to what they do know. Um, But that's just the way it is. I mean, there are going to be people who are more gifted than some people just have a natural quickness of mind. Some people only in certain things, some people in a lot of things. 
Some people have a clarity of mind that other people don't have. Some people have an ability to think creatively that others don't have. And that's why you have these great geniuses, these uh, Aristotles and Einsteins and Newtons and, and, and Rashis and Rambams and so on that are, you know, and Rabbi Akiva's and whoever you want to take that are definitely, even among the Chachamim, how many of the Chachamim entered into the Pardes? Four of the generation of Rabbi Akiva. And only one of them didn't get damaged in the process. So uh, what does that tell you about even among the Chachamim, there were different levels. Not everybody was the same and not everyone was, uh, was considered to have the same level of intellect and not everybody was considered to have the same level of clarity. Uh, and, you know, that was the, yeah, that's, that's human, that's our reality as human beings. Just like the body, there are some people that are naturally have greater strength or other advantages, physical advantages. Uh, in the world of the mind, some people naturally have uh, advantages. You're not judged for that. You're not judged for that, meaning you can't be, uh, can't be held accountable for the cards that you're dealt. But, um, but, I, but I promise you that people don't use 99% of their ability, whether they have a lot or a little. It's not like we're, you're. It's not like the person's using one hundred percent of their capacity. If a person was using one hundred percent of their capacity, most people who are of average or slightly above average intelligence would be would be excelling past people who are great geniuses simply because a great genius is not necessarily using his capacity or her capacity to the fullest extent. And there's a lot that you can do to refine your thinking. That's why you, learning logic or learning. You know, learning the disciplines that teach a person to think with greater clarity and greater precision and simply the experience. Like you, um, you take a kid that learned in yeshiva and learned Gemara and learned all of these things and you put him in a classroom with a bunch of college kids who uh, never learned any stuff like that. He's already ahead of them. You could be the guy that's, uh, uh, he could be the guy that's at the bottom of the class or the middle of the class in his yeshiva but you put him in a, in a college class with kids that might be really smart, but didn't really spend much of their time thinking or using their mind or being challenged or having, uh, you know, questions, answers, back and forth, abstract thought and so on. I'm not even talking about Rambam versus Yeshivish. I'm just saying the mere fact that one person used their mind and broke their head over, you know, analyzing Gmarot or whatever it was that really challenged them to exercise their mind than another one who just didn't use it. So it's already an advan- huge advantage. It has nothing to do with their potential. Right? So don't get too hung up on that. That's my advice. Yeah, what, what did you want to ask, uh, Daniel? No, you kind of cleared it up with what you were just saying. Okay. I think it was, it was originally just I didn't fully understand the distinction you were making between these facets of the mind versus midot, but once you like, spoke about it more, I think I got where he's going. I think the main point to remember is this. You see a lot of birds flying around, but you never say, wow, I don't have any wings. I'm inferior because I don't, I'm not able to fly. Nobody thinks that. So you see a person who has a 195 IQ. That's not even possible, by the way. And I don't even really believe in IQ, but I'm just using that as an example. You see a person at 200 IQ, you say, wow, I, if only I could have that. But you don't have that. So, what, so it's, it's no different than wishing that you had wings and could fly, uh, wishing that you had the, uh, the abilities of a person that you don't have. I wish I could run 
a mile in 30 seconds. I can't do that. Uh, I'm never going to be able to do that. And it's okay. What can I do? I probably use only 1% of my actual ability that I have. So instead of sitting around and wondering what it would be like if I had the abilities of Einstein, I could sit around and wonder what it would be like if I used the abilities I actually had. Um, but be that as it may, what he's saying is that, um, that a Navi is going to have perfection in both of these areas. And it makes perfect sense. A Navi is a person who is, has great intellect, but also whose personality and energies are or, ordered around Yidiyat Hashem. So he achieves a level of Yidiyat Hashem that's superior. And keep in mind that the Nevi'im, especially the later Nevi'im that talk about the ultimate Geulah, reference you know, pretty much everybody being able to experience prophecy. So that means that as much as you feel that your uh, level of uh, intellect doesn't match up to Rabbi Akiva or uh, any of these great uh, people that we, we imagine or that we, you know, we discuss, uh, at the end of the day, it's a lot of a lot of it is because we're not minatzel. We're not utilizing and taking advantage of the of the ability and potential that we have. That's the shame of it. Not that we don't have the same gift as uh, as uh, certain people who have extraordinary gifts, but that we don't use our potential to the fullest extent with the gifts that we do have. You know, that's much more of the focus now. Okay, so that's why we shouldn't focus on that. It just gets you depressed anyway, right? Now, um, so now, Okay, so the last point was that, yeah, the sins, which are the ra'ot, are what divide between us and Hashem. Um, now, obviously, uh, all the deficiencies limit our ability to relate to God because, as he said, the... Uh, the deficiencies in um, the deficiencies in understanding also are going to affect it because since our relationship to God is through knowledge, so if our intellectual ability is less, our capacity for grasping knowledge of God is going to be less. Um, if our ability, but but in the realm of the choices we make, that's avonotechem. You know, your own choices and sins are what divide between you and God. Those are the self-created obstacles and mechitzot that we do have the power to remove. Um, and, and one would be, and it's interesting that he focuses mainly on notes, because he says, Obviously, it's not an avon that you're born with certain, uh, uh, you know, intellectual capacity. It's an avon if you don't utilize it, if it's, it's an avon if you don't, perfect and refine it so that it works to its fullest capacity and you just decide not to exercise it or not to train yourself to use it or not to apply it. So then, yeah, that is an avon also, right? But, the, but, but he, but, you know, also character avonot. So he says, So he says that no navi would have nevuah unless he had all of the intellectual perfections and most of the midot perfections. Okay, meaning he doesn't have to be fully perfected, and that's because really, ultimately, the nivuah is an intellectual experience. But if he doesn't have the majority of them, his mind won't even be settled enough for him to perceive anything. It's like it says, It says, nivuah only falls upon a person who's a wise, uh, mighty, and rich. Obviously, chacham refers to the intellectual uh, perfection. Ashir, he takes to mean the way that the Chazal mean the word Ashir. Right? Because 
Ashira has nothing to do with the amount of money that you have. Ashira is a psychological state of a person's satisfaction. So an individual who's distressed because they don't have $10 million, they only have $5 million, uh, is not any better off than the person who has uh, 10000 and he's totally fine with it. Psychologically, the, that person's functioning better. Okay, they might, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that it's, uh, we, we don't consider having uh, material means to be good. It can be good if it's used for the right purpose. But... Um, but if the person's psychological distresses, they're dissatisfied, and therefore their focus is on accumulating more wealth, and they're not able to enjoy what they have or to mobilize what they have for a higher purpose, then it doesn't. Re- that's not what an ashir is. An ashir is a person who is uh, su- su- who has what is you know has a sense of uh, of uh, uh, satisfaction and 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 that things are sufficient for them. Um, that's the main thing, and therefore isn't turned either towards the t- inward to fe- towards their feeling of dissatisfaction or outwards towards the material things to accumulate more. Either of those would be a misdirection of their energy. Now that's that's. In other words, he's satisfied with what he has, and he's not distressed over what he doesn't have. That's the perfect state to be. Okay, and everyone kind of gives lip service to that idea, but few people actually internalize that idea. There are some that do. V'chein gibor, what is a mighty person? U'gam ken b'ma'alot ha'midot. So he'll say, she'enag kuchotav k'fiyad ha'dat v'ha'itza. K'mo sh'b'yarnu p'rak ha'mishi. V'omro, ezo gibor ha'kofesh t'itzo. So he basically defines for us, you know, what is it, what does a gibor mean? When it talks about a navi being a gibor, it doesn't mean that he works out at the gym, although he probably would do that because he, uh, he wants to keep his body healthy. But um, it means that he's, it means internally, the real gibor is the person who conquers himself. And what he defines that is that he guides himself. He, he, he governs his conduct by in, intelligence and proper uh, advice, meaning he's not subject to the whims of the instinct. So that's real being gibor because you are uh, tr- because to be gibor means control. Gvura means the ability to control. So we usually think of gvura as control over things external to yourself, um, your ability to impose your will on external factors, people, circumstances is called gvura. But uh, the real gvura is the internal because uh, if a person is able to impose their will on the external reality or environment, but internally they're not the ones who are really determining their choices, but it's really their instincts that are propelling them forward or their psychological issues are what... uh, uh, what is uh, compelling them to uh, to act the way that they do? So they're not really in control. Ultimately, ultimately, they are an instrument in the hand of their disordered psyche or their instinctual drives or whatever it is. Um, it's like there's a there's a there's a famous story about this chacham. I think it's a not real story, but it's like a like a mashal sort of that this chacham said to this king. Uh, I am the master of the one that you serve. And the king said, you know, how dare you say that? How dare you say that the king 
is it serves someone and that you are a master? He said, because uh, you serve your instincts, you serve your appetites, and I'm a master of it. So I'm a master of the one that you serve. But that's the, the, the idea is that if the higher element in the person is not what's really making their decisions, so as powerful as they might be externally, it's not really them that's being served by their mastery of the environment. It's really their internal uh, deficiencies, whether it's their instincts or their psychological issues or whatever it is, that uh, let's say a person feels inadequate and feels, uh, I'm just making this up, but a person feels inadequate, they have very low self-esteem, so they make a lot of money and they build giant skyscrapers that make them feel very important, okay? So yeah, they have a lot of money and they've built a lot of skyscrapers that show how important they are, but it's only to serve this internal feeling of inadequacy that's gnawing at them, that they feel depressed or they feel uh, insufficient or they feel, you know, in whatever, inferior or whatever. Um, and it's all to serve this inner psychological uh, disorder that, they, uh, that they're struggling with. So how good, how much of gvura is that? You know, it's not really much. Or, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a good example because there are many people who are trying to prove something to the world by, you know, making these great accomplishments. But at the end of the day, what are they really doing? They're really just catering to a lower element of themselves. That lower element, if they're jealous, if they feel inadequate, if they feel whatever, then the, all of their project, as impressive as it might seem in the external world, it's really just catering being driven by the lowest element or one of the lowest elements of their personality. Or like, uh, to give another random example, the story in Sefer Yehoshua of Rachav, where Rachav says, you know, uh, kama ba'ish you know, when it, the Chazal say that, um, that Rachav actually had the most realistic view of, uh, of the morale of the... Because uh, the question is, you know, why did they talk to... Why specifically Rachav is the one who defects and becomes Jewish? Because she has the most realistic view of the masculinity and the macho behavior of the people of Yericho and realizes that, that it's all fake. At the end of the day, these people might seem very impressive, but their, what's governing their uh, conduct is their uh, instincts and they're going to, the, you know, that, that's why people who are in that business uh, usually have a very negative view of men because they see these really important men that they seem like, wow, they're making so much money and they're so successful and they have a fancy car and they have a fancy suit, they have a fancy house, they have all this money. But at the end of the day, they're dropping thousands of dollars to uh, satisfy this lust that they can't control. That's a totally a fantasy that they go into this uh, thing. And it's, it's pathetic, actually. And so anybody who sees that, of course, in order to continue their business uh, running, they have to pretend that it's not pathetic. But, um, but they, they don't hide. If they, whenever they have, you know, do any studies where they actually interview people who are in, the, uh, in that line of work, they discover that they're pretty, uh, they have a pretty negative view of men and a pretty, uh, they view them as pretty pathetic. And um, there's an accurate, that's pretty accurate. Meaning these people who seem like they are, em- they, they rule over empires in the external world, but at the end of the day, they're just weak, pathetic uh, slaves of their own instincts and they can't even get that under control. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of sad. Um, and that's, the, uh, that's another example of that. Anyway, moving on. So that's a Kovesh So the point is that the person who is 
a navi cannot be a person who is uh, who is whose instincts are in control of them, and can't be a person who's. Uh, who is not an ashir, meaning who psychologically is, is focused on the accumulation of material wealth. So the, these are two. Now, wh- why are those significant, really? Why are those significant? Because two things, uh, two things. One is, um, and this is, I think, the key point of why, why the ma'alota midot are uh, so significant in the intellectual uh, life uh, or so significant in the nivu'ah life. One is because of the time that's invested. In other words, where is the, where, where is the investment of the energy? So if the libido, because a person has a certain amount of libido or a certain amount of physical energy, okay? What the psychoanalysts, they call the libido of the person, but it's like, you know, the, uh, the, the physical energy the, you know, uh, of the person. So that can be channeled into good or it could be channeled into the pursuit of gratification that is, uh, that is of a you know, physical gratification. So the, so the question is, well, how do you budget your time? So the person who's budgeting their time, the person who's kovesh at Yitzro and also has his tapkut and his ashir in the sense that they're not chasing after material goods, so their energy is able to be directed towards the development of their understanding and knowledge, that's number one. In other words, what's the, what's the use of their... Uh, of their time. But there's a more, even more fundamental layer of it, which is what is their orientation to the world? What are they looking for? What are they looking at? That's why I mentioned before when we talked about the camera as an analogy, I just threw out that analogy off the cuff. I'm not sure if it's a perfect analogy. It might not be, but I was just, it just something that popped into my head that if you're looking at a satellite, let's say, the satellite could be a, a lesser satellite because it doesn't show as precise of an image, meaning the image is a very f- low pixel image. It's only uh, uh, 240 instead of, uh, I don't know what the different you know, levels of uh, pixelation are now, but whatever the highest level, it doesn't show the highest level. It shows a very uh, less defined image. That's like an intellectual imperfection. But you can also have that, let's say the satellite focuses on only a corner of the picture every time. It doesn't focus on, it doesn't properly zoom in. It doesn't properly zoom out. It doesn't properly um, angle itself to give you the full picture of whatever the satellite is supposed to be taking a picture of in the galaxy or whatever, right? That, that's a, so that's, that's really, um, I think that analogy works, could be imperfect. You might find some defect in the analogy, but I just made it up, so you have to forgive me for that. But I think that the analogy works in the sense that the person that, has, um, that ha- is pursuing the material uh, goods, and as we said, most midot deficiencies and perfections have to do with the attitude towards the physical versus towards the, you know, moving towards the body and the material things versus away, right? So if the person's, uh, attitude towards the body or attitude towards the physical world, he's oriented towards certain elements of it, such as in the case of the instinctual person, what pleasure can I get out of this? He sees a situation and he focuses in on what opportunities for pleasure are there in this situation. Or the person goes into a situation and says, what opportunities for acquiring wealth are there in this situation? That's what they see. So they'll walk through a forest and say, wow, I could cut down these trees and cook a really nice hamburger on this uh, on the wood, or they walk through the forest and say, "I could cut down the trees and b- build a fancy house out of this wood, or I could build a boat that would take me 
to different places to trade uh, my uh, merchandise or whatever. In other words, the way that they're oriented towards the environment and the world is going to be, and that's why 99% of people, and I'm probably exaggerating when I say only 99%, 99% of people look at the world only through the lens of the material things, the material advantage, either in terms of practicality, which we call practical, meaning the acquisition of material goods, right? Or because we don't go higher than that, meaning a person who is instinctually driven, everyone even in society says, okay, that person is not the most accomplished person. That person is like, you know, they might be having a good time and maybe, maybe some people are jealous of them because oh, they can afford to or they can get away with having a really good time, right? But the, what we call practical are the people who subdue their desire for immediate gratification in order to pursue the acquisition of material wealth, which for some reason is considered to be more mechubad. It's a more... Because it takes care of the family and it's, you know, it provides for something, it can provide for things beyond the immediate gratification, that's a level. So when we measure, for instance, you know, the famous marshmallow test of kids that are able to uh, restrict, you know, uh, are able to deny themselves immediate gratification and how that, you know what that is, right? The marshmallow test where they leave the kid alone with the marshmallows, okay? So like the ability to uh, resist immediate gratification is a good indicator uh, although there's been a lot of people who've brought up critiques of that, whether that whether that's really accurate and whether to what extent it's accurate, and you know they always love to go back and revisit these these experiments and critique them. So I'm not sure that it's 100% ironclad. Probably nothing is, but the idea of uh, being able to to restrain instinctual gratification as a uh, indicator uh, of future success is definitely true. Success, again, being measured by making a lot of money, not by uh, anything, right? So, but the, the, that, because that's what we consider to be success as opposed to instinctual gratification. Like I remember I read a book. It's actually quite a good book. Um, it's outdated now, I guess, probably, because it's like uh, uh, maybe 20 years old, maybe a little bit less, maybe 15 years old. It's a book basically about, um, it's called Half the Sky, it's a book about like how women are oppressed in uh, all different cultures. It doesn't really talk about the United States. It talks about all different cultures across the world and how women are treated differently and oppressed and don't get proper medical care and so on and so forth. All kinds of things about like more about the third world, uh, you know, how they're forced into all kinds of, you know, sex slavery and prostitution and all kinds of bad stuff. It's a very depressing book, but I think it's a very eye-opening because you we, we don't think about these things because we live in relatively civilized countries in your case and fully civilized in my case. Um, so we, uh, we, you know, so, but it's, uh, it, it's, all, it's all relative, but there's definitely a lot worse places even than America. So, um, so in, in this book anyway, it talked about in one case the idea of micro-lending, which was a really big thing. And I think the guy who invented it like won a Nobel Prize or something like that. But one of the things that they talked about was, and that's how I learned about it. I learned about it from this book and it was talking about how um, they would lend the money out. And I forget which particular country they were talking about, which culture they were talking about. I can't remember. But they would lend the money out. And they, in the beginning, they would do this micro-lending. They would lend it to uh, men or women. And usually men, of course, would be the ones to go and be the manly ones and get these micro-loans that were supposed to be used for investing in some kind of a business and then helping their families get on their feet. Right? That's the idea of it. And actually, they have a really, really high, or did at the time of the writing of the book, have a really, really high rate of um, 
paying back those loans and the whole thing. Like it, it worked pretty well. But what they found was that when the men would receive the money, a lot of times they would go out to the bars and spend like a good amount of the money on like drinking and having fun. Whereas when the women would get the money, they would be the ones who were the most tight with it. Like, oh, we need to only purchase reeds for making our, the hats that we're going to sell or whatever it was that they were doing in their business, right? So that the fact that the men would go for the immediate instinctual gratification, whereas the women thought about the longer term, could, could restrain their tendency towards immediate gratification and uh, think of something higher than that was something noteworthy. Now, it's definitely necessary for the practical life. Absolutely. If you're going to be even a great athlete, you have to restrain your desire to party and drink and, and, and relax all the time. You have to work really hard. Anything that you need to achieve, you're going to have to work really hard. You're going to have to be able to restrain the tendency towards immediate gratification. No question. It's just that in our society, we don't get much beyond the idea of accomplishment in the material sense when it comes to uh, measuring success. And so all of these measures, and that's why I, I kind of make fun of the thing of IQ, because all IQ actually measures is, is the same exact skills that academic, uh, th that the academy measures, meaning not the, not the uh, Oscars. I'm talking about the, um, that, that is me are, are measured in the, uh, in the uh, you know, in school, basically. That's all the IQ test measures. And so, and of course, what's measured in school is basically those skills that are most correlated with future financial success, meaning your ability to do well at a higher level of education if needed, and then to do well in a job. That's, that's it. Um, it. There's no correlation necessarily between that and someone having a meaningful life or a uh, making great discoveries, intellectual discoveries. And, you know, of course, there's all these stories about Einstein doing really poorly in school and then, you know, being a genius. They're not 100% true, those stories, I hate to tell you. It is true that he wasn't, like, very well behaved and maybe didn't always follow the rules and stuff like that, but he was not dumb at any time in his life. Um, he, but the, the fact is that if, if you... Uh, that it's just measuring, it's a self-referencing measurement that is, uh, that is based upon the model of, the conventional model of success that determines the educational system of, uh, uh, of America or of the Western world, I should say, uh, which measures success by, by material success. Um, that's, but it's still considered higher than, uh, than gratification of the instinct, which we all recognize is an immediate thing and doesn't require any effort or any sophistication to go after that, right? So the, um, it requires at least the ability to suppress that instinct in order to do anything higher than that, including invest your money or build a business or any of those other things. Um, so that's the, uh, that's, that's the idea. So the person who is looking at the world through, uh, only through material opportunity or, or instinctual opportunity is looking at a different world than a person who's looking to understand God. That's the important thing to, to, under, to, to realize. So <clears throat> it's not only that they invest their time differently, which is also true, it's that their, their orientation to the world is, uh, is different. And, um, and it's not necessarily true that a person who invests their time even in intellectual things has changed that because there are plenty of people who are in let's say, might be in an intellectual 
pursuit, but it's for the sake of a material gain. So essentially, they're still they're even looking at their intellectual pursuit as an instrument of material gain in that case. Like, let's say Bil'am would be a person like that, perhaps. Or, uh, or if you read the, um, the Double Helix uh, book, the book about the uh, discovery of DNA and how cutthroat and political and ridiculous, like all the uh, fighting over who was going to be the one who, would, who figured this out and published and all that. It was all, kind of, it was all ego and all this stuff. Actually, a lot of people didn't like the book because it really showed the ugly side of like scientific research and things like that. So despite the fact that these people are geniuses and making these great discoveries, they were doing it for less noble uh, purpose. In any case, so the point is that this is the, this is the issue with the midot. The midot are about how you invest your energy, but they're also about how you look at the world, right? How you see the world. What do you see? What do you see free time as? An opportunity for thought? Or do you see that the free time as an opportunity for instinctual gratification? You see free time as an opportunity to plan your next business move? All of these things are possible, uh, are going to depend upon what your, what your state is, what your purpose is. And that's, that's what he's, that, so it, it interferes in that way. And it could block us from understanding certain things if we have, uh, if we have a uh, distorted, for example, I'll give you an example. This is a little controversial, but it's, I don't think that many people listen to this recording. Um, People who say chukim have no reason behind it. Okay? Chuk has no reason behind it. God just doesn't want you to eat certain things. There's no reason. It's a chuk. Right? So, so what is that really premised on? Really eating everything that you want is good. Really, it's very good. But God arbitrarily decided not to do it. Don't, don't do it. Don't ask why. That's actually what the Muslims believe. That's actually, the, uh, that's actually what Islam teaches. Islam says that really all of these pleasures of the flesh are amazing. And you're denying yourself those pleasures in order to satisfy God's will. So in the next world, you get to have even more of all those pleasures. Right? Not because those pleasures are not actually good, but because this way you get even more because you denied yourself those pleasures while you were in this world for the sake of God. So the, um, the <coughs> I'm not suggesting that everyone who believes that Chukim have no reason subscribes to uh, Islamic theology. I'm saying that it, it's convenient if I, have a, if I have a belief that I'm very attached to, that it's self-evident that gratifying my instincts is good and that eating lots of food is good, it's just that I submit myself to the will of God and I don't do it, that's very different from somebody who says that the Torah is limiting certain behavior in order to teach me that, there's, that it's not intrinsically good. It's only good within, in a certain context or it's only good to a certain extent. Or it's only good when it's, you know, when it's channeled towards a particular goal. It's trying to teach me to reframe how I look at that aspect of my life. It's not just giving me an arbitrary rule. There's a big difference in how you look at life and, and how you look at what's really important if you, uh, 
you know, if you look at it that way. So sometimes by saying these are just arbitrary rules, we're kind of saying they, therefore they're not going to change the way that I actually look at my relationship with food, or they're not going to change the way I look at my relationship to sexual appetite, or they're not really going to change the way that I re- look at any other aspect of, uh, of life. Or tzitzit is not going to change the way that I look at how I dress, or uh, mezuzah is not going to change the way that I look at uh, what my source of security is in life and what's really uh, of ultimate value in life, it's actually just there to make sure that nothing goes bad in my material life. The mezuzah is a magical uh, amulet that ensures my physical success, my health, and, this, and my wealth. So it's actually literally the opposite of what it's supposed to be. Right, So instead of letting it challenge the fact that you think that your physical health and wealth and all that is the ultimate value, you turn it into something that actually reinforces that. It's a, that that's, if something goes wrong in your life, you have to check your mezuzah because obviously the, the security system that was protecting your material goods is not working. Because ultimately it must only be about that. And that's why the Rambam is constantly trying to push, and really the Chazal in general, but the Rambam in particular, push this idea that whenever it's talking about like he says in Hilchot Mezuzah, he says that, you know, that a person who has, uh, a person who has a Mezuzah on his door and tzitzit on his uh, garment and a tefillin is very unlikely to sin. And this is what it means, because the malachim are what guide you on the path of the right values, not the thing that reinforces the wrong value. Oh, the guy wasn't killed in a car accident because he's wearing tzitzit and it protected him. It's like, that's not the purpose of a tzitzit to, for your physical body. So the Rambam, and that's why the Rambam is against you know, writing the names of malachim and all that in the Mizuzah. That's very famous. And he says it makes it pasul, and it also, in addition to making it pasul, it also destroys the entire idea of what a mezuzah is supposed to be about. Which is not to protect the body, but to show you that that's not the ultimate good. It's not the ultimate, uh, it's not the ultimate purpose to have uh, the material wealth. And that each time you leave your house and come into your house, you remember that the only thing that stands, la'adul olme olamim, I forget the exact language, <clears throat> I'm sure you guys, you guys have read it before, right? This uh, Rambam, very famous Rambam, right? So uh, the only thing that's la'adul olme olamim is knowledge of God, Baruch Hu, and that's, uh, I have, I forget the, my memory never was that good, and it hasn't gotten better. Uh, one second. Yeah, he says, um, he talks about it in two places. One second. One of them is where he talks about the Malachim. Um, <clears throat> he says, she'eluatipshim, he's talking about the people who put names of Malachim. I never saw anybody put names of Malachim in there nowadays, but he says, he says, huh? Right, only because of that. I think it was, it was common before, yeah. He says, <laughs> Right, so he says, 
שהיא ייחוד שמו של הקדוש ברוך הוא ואהבתו ועבודתו כאילו היא קמה על הנייט עצמן. Right? They're taking the mitzvah of oneness of God, love of God, service of God, as if it's an amulet for their own benefit. כמו שעלה על ליבם השכל, שזה דבר המענה בהבלי העולם. Because they've decided in their foolishness that this is something that's supposed to benefit their, you know, benefit the material world, give them a material benefit. And then at the end, he also says this thing that I was mentioning to you before, that, uh, that, which one? About the Malachim? <coughs> it's in Perak Chamishi of Filchot Tfilin Mizuzan Sefer Torah. It's Halacha Dalet. It's a very famous, I think every, it's one that you probably heard before right here and there. Yeah. yeah. And then there's another one where it says, Chayav Adam Lizeribo Mizuzah. This is the very end of Filchot Mizuzah, which is uh, Perak Shishi. It's actually 613, easy to remember. Chayav Adam Lizeribo Mizuzah, Mibnei Shichovat הכל תמיד, וכל עת שייכנס ויצא יפגע בייחוד שמו של הקדוש ברוך הוא, ויזכור עבדו, ויאור משנתו ושקיעתו בעבלי הזמן. Every time he goes in or goes out of his house, he's going to encounter the name of God, remember love of God, wake up from his sleep and his immersion in the foolishness of the time, meaning on the temporary things, וידע שאין שם דבר העומד לעולם ולעולמי עולמים, אלא ידיעת צור העולם. That he will remember that the only thing that lasts forever is knowledge of God. This will return him to his mind. And he will walk in the proper way. I'm sure that happens to all of you every time you see him. Anybody who has tefillin on his hand and his arm, uh, on his uh, head and his arm, He's not going to sin because of that. Because he has many reminders. This is a chazal. These are the malachim that save him. Right? So that's a, a pasuk from uh, Teilim, from, uh, uh, from the... Uh, uh, from the long uh, Teilim about... Uh, uh, so but the point is that um, that he's saying that a person will transform even these mitzvot, even these mitzvot that are supposed to actually focus him on what is of ultimate importance and lasting importance and permanent uh, significance uh, and he makes it into something that actually reinforces his fantasy that the uh, ultimate good is the uh, is the material things. Uh, and that's, that's a matter of the orientation to the world. So then when you look at the mitzvot, you're also going to see magical amulets that give you shmirah and that protect your physical uh, existence. And when you, look at, uh, the, when you look at the world in general, um, and again, I can, it, it, how far I want to jump, walk off this ledge, I'm not sure, but um, it's the same thing as the people who believe that every detail of their life is specifically coordinated by Hashkacha Pratit. Because God really cares about whether you made the train or not. It wasn't your fault that you didn't leave on time to get to the train. God didn't want you to go on the train. Okay, so the idea that every little thing that occurs is not just, and it's not like they see, if a person said something like this, 
Hashem wanted me to miss the train because then on the platform of the train station, I met this individual. We talked about Divrei Torah and I ended up having a tremendous insight into Divrei Torah and it was unbelievable. Like your story about the lady talking to you when you were davening at the airport. Like that's like a story that, wow, because you were there, she ended up having, you made a Kiddush Hashem. The person has like an understanding that they wouldn't have had before. It's like, a, that's a, a Gedoylim story for the, for the books. But we're, but most people's like, oh, I didn't go, and because of that, then the train got in, you know, derailed, God forbid, or something else, and uh, I was saved from it. So, uh, or because of this, I uh, I made more money, or because of this, I didn't get sick, or because of, it's usually only about the physical things that you were saved from, as if God is orchestrating the whole universe around your physical interests, your temporal. Uh, concerns. So that's that's where that you know again that's where that whole thing of every minute is divine providence is coming from because the there's no distinction made between the, the aspects of your life that actually are worthy of God's providence and interest and the aspects of your life that aren't. And. Uh, and 99% of our lives are uh, occupied with temporal fleeting things that there's very little reason to think God's providence would have an interest in intervening. In fact, if God's providence did that, there wouldn't be much left of the laws of nature if every second God's law, God was intervening for the sake of, um, uh, for the sake of, uh, uh, of our material interests at every single second. So the... Uh, that's another aspect of how a person, so therefore a person, and that's really, maybe we can conclude, I don't want to keep you guys for too long, but like, even though it doesn't matter, I have another hour and a half till Minyan. Um, the, uh, the, the, that's where, like, for example, what Elisha ben Avuya, when you talk about Achir, what was the problem with Elisha ben Avuya? Chazal point to it, they say it without saying it. Right, they have. There's a story in the Yerushalmi about the, and we talked about this in other shiurim. But there's a story in the Yerushalmi about the father of Elisha ben Avuya that the Chachamim came to his Brit Milah and he saw. I think it was a Brit Milah, Brit Milah or uh, or Pidyona ben. I can't remember. And uh, and they saw like a ring of fire around the. Uh, he saw a ring of fire around the Chachamim and he said, "Wow, I want my son to also have this amazing power." What does it mean? It doesn't mean that they burned his house down. It means that they, you know, there was an aura about them. There was something about them that was so incredible. He wanted them to be like that. Or it says that what was the, what was the, the straw that broke the camel's back of Elisha ben Avuya? That he saw a child fulfilling the two mitzvot that it says you're going to have a long life, which was his father told him to go do Shiloh HaKen on the ladder and uh, these are two mitzvot that it says, that he's fulfilling, you know, kibura ve'em and also uh, sending away the mother bird. And he died. He fell off the ladder and died. And Elisha ben Avuya said, uh, forget it. Or that he saw, I think it was Hanania ben Tradion, or one of, no, one of the uh, his tongue being dragged in the, by a dog, you know. And he said, you know, the, I can't take it. What are, and, and the Gemara says he didn't realize that the arichut yamim is talking about an olam haba, not an olam hazeh. For and for the, so you know what is it trying to say? Well, all of those all of those statements of Chazal they say it without saying it. They're basically saying he thought that the, that there needed to be a correlation between that that Torah should lead to material prosperity, and therefore if he saw people going in the Derech Torah that weren't 
didn't have material prosperity or that suffered physical calamity, he thought that 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 was a problem, that was a disproof of his entire understanding of what divine providence was about, that divine providence should be delivering the material goods to those who follow the Torah, and he didn't see that. And that's what the Chazal are saying, that he didn't understand that the Arichud Yamim is an Olam Haba, meaning it's not something measured materially, it's not something measured in physical terms, but because even starting from his father, what did he see as the greatness of the Chachamim? A ring of fire and around them at his Brit Milah, meaning that he saw a certain uh, aura, charisma, whatever it was that was animating these Chachamim, that people would saw them as being so great. He wanted his child to have that. So from the beginning, the idea was from the beginning, what Elisha ben Avuya was looking for in Torah was for it to for the result of following the Torah to manifest itself in a certain material way, in a way that um, fit in with his uh, physical desires or desire for accomplishment or whatever it was. And he saw that that doesn't happen. It doesn't translate. It doesn't work. And therefore he had to reject it. Instead of re-contextualizing and realizing that actually uh, this is not the... It's the same thing as Eov, basically. It's similar to Eov. He saw, he saw that the religious life doesn't lead to a materially comfort, comfortable life because he thought that, the, that, the ultimate, that ultimately there should be a correspondence between the two. And the answer is that there really isn't necessarily a correspondence between the two in particular cases. And, uh, but a person who recognizes that the value of Torah is innate and not dependent on its leading to certain material outcomes will live by the Torah because of its innate goodness and not because of its leading to those material outcomes. So this, the reason why we got on this sort of sidetrack is just to understand how the intellectual life of a person is influenced by their midot. That if a person, and then what does it say about in, in Masechet Chagiga about Elisha ben Avuya? He went to a prostitute on Shabbat. That's how he got the name Acher. Because she said, he solicits a prostitute and she says, uh, aren't you Elisha ben Avuya? And he pulls out something uh, from the ground on Shabbat and she says, oh, you must be somebody else. You, uh, you must be Acher. Right? Because you pulled something out of the ground on Shabbat. So, uh, so the idea is that he succumbed basically to the lower elements, that that was really ultimately who he was deep down. He just found a sophisticated way for his intellectual pursuits to, uh, uh, you know, he, he was interested in the intellectual matters. He continued learning with Rabbi Meir and all that, but he, he thought that ultimately it needed to lead to, uh, to physical outcomes that were, uh, you know, desirable to him on a, on a deeper level. And uh, that wasn't going to happen. So the the idea of uh, the idea of the uh, what what I'm just mentioning here. The reason I'm mentioning it here is because that's the that's why the values a person has, or the their kvishata yetzer, or their uh, in, involvement with, or non involvement with, or attachment with to, or non attachment to the material things, is going to affect their intellectual life also, because it's going to affect even the way you look at hashkacha pratit. It's going to affect the way that you look at hashkacha klalit. It's going to affect the way you look at what's important in the outside world. What kind of scientific insight is important? Is it only ones that lead to uh, material outcomes because those are the only ones that get good funding in the universities because there's a material outcome because it's a, they're going to cure a disease. Not that curing disease is not important. Obviously it is. It's very important. I'm just saying that's the only kind of research that will be funded. Or, you know, n- n- once in a while they'll fund something that's just l'shem 
understanding something. But in order to sell it, they usually have to attach it to some kind of a material outcome that's desirable, practical outcome that's desirable, because knowledge itself is not seen necessarily as a good. Or just the mere fact that we think that the geopolitical realities of our planet are the most important thing in the universe. Like literally, that is what we are occupied with 24-7. All the news is occupied with it. A rare occasion, there's a news item about something that doesn't relate to the geopolitical interests of mankind, as if that is really, wow, the Hubble telescope captured something really interesting. Or here's an interesting thing about nature that was discovered. Or now, but, it, but that's one, one, one ten thousandth of the uh, articles that you see uh, in the news, because most interest is in the geopolitical, as if this tiny planet that's a speck of dust on a speck of dust in, you know, in a vast universe, the, it, our concerns and our political rivalries and all that and our political interests and our uh, accomplishments are that are so important. And then tell somebody that, by the way, one day the entire planet is going to be evaporated into thin air by, you know, the supernova of the sun or whatever. It's very depressing. You know, even though it's not going to happen during your lifetime, there's a sense that, wow, even the things I think are permanent, they're not. People don't like to think about that stuff. But that's, you know, I think this is important because this is how midot can affect. These are the mechitzot he's talking about. In other words, the, to the extent a person is totally disaffected by the uh, instincts and by the material, uh, the allure of accomplishment, that person is going to be able to see the reality uh, with a much, much clearer perception. Uh, and their camera will be clear and the focus of the camera will be correct. And the zoom, the zooming of the camera will be exactly right because what they're seeking is Yudiyat Hashem and not anything else. That's, that's, that's the, I know we, we elaborated way too much maybe on that point, but I think it, it was important to flesh it out because it's something I think isn't often uh, fleshed out so much. Any thoughts, comments? I see, a, is there a raised hand? The raising hand, come on, guys. I noticed it looked like you were, it was still light out there. Good to see you. Where on the West Coast? Where, where are you on the West Coast? A little bit more than that. I, I'm just, like, I understood conceptually the idea that, that someone who is constantly looking to satisfy physical desires and someone who is constantly focused on what he doesn't have as opposed to just being satisfied with what he has. I can, I can see how that can get in the way of the bigger picture from understanding the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. But? There's also an element where, yeah, I'm wondering whether there's also an element that, is it, can someone's complete, be crazy to stop boots, or, right, when last year, the one who's the wealthy first, extreme in that, that a person can not like we're not we're not trying to praise someone who doesn't have any sense of the value of being able to support himself and his 
family and able to live comfortably and that's not what we're trying to like the person who's the healthy person is a realistic person. It's a realistic person they're talking about. Meaning, we're not we're not saying the person. Uh, obviously, a higher the higher the level of the person, the lower their the lower they're going to set their needs. I think that's true. I think that I think that there's a truth to that. Meaning, what your standard is going to be for what's comfortable for you, that's largely psychological. It's not biological, biologically determined. So. To a certain extent, yeah, a person who's irresponsible is also unhealthy. We, that's the extremes of the midot, right? The person who just like starves themselves, doesn't care about whether, they're, uh, whether they are, uh, that's, that's another extreme that's also considered unhealthy, right? But a person who is a person, and that's, a, that's one of the, the negative midot also. The, the, but what your standards are, uh, it will reflect, meaning like we praise a lot of times the great people that had very modest homes, very modest requirements physically. They didn't eat a lot. They didn't, uh, you know, they, they weren't into the pleasures of life. You know, I remember uh, reading about, I think it was Ezra Tia, like ate like a cracker every day. That was all he had. And then he had like dinner, but because he grew up in poverty, so he was like very accustomed to minimal uh, minimal kind of food intake. Um, everyone is different about that, but yeah, we praise the people who are able to live and be satisfied with a very modest life because it means that the, I think the reason why we do that is because it means that they're not allowing social pressure to uh, force them to live up to a standard that they don't really need and they don't really benefit from, but the benefit is that it's meeting a certain social standard, that they're a slave to the social standard that's exerting pressure on them. I think that's why we praise those people. But a person who's like irresponsible, I don't think we praise that kind of person. Um, we, would, we would consider like, okay, if a family like together said, look, we want to live on the minimal and we want to, we, we, we want to, you know, that's, that's our value system and this is what we believe in. Okay, but a person who's like negating his responsibilities, I would say is also unhealthy. So the level that you're on, like, like when, like the, like when the when the Chazal say, and the Rambam quotes it a lot. The other, he might quote it here. I don't remember. He definitely quotes it in the Mishnah Torah. That when the you know when the Nevi'im, other Nevi'im have a normal family life, right? Moshe Rabbeinu didn't. Other you know other Nevi'im eat and drink. Moshe Rabbeinu forty days and nights eat and eat. So that's unusual. It's not the common. It's not common. The difference between a Navi or a great person uh, and a and a. Uh, disordered person is that the Navi or the great person just has different expectations and different, uh, you know, what, and, and a different standard that they're willing to live up to uh, and be satisfied and they're not pressured by the uh, social uh, demands, which I think is a big problem. It's a very, very hard thing. Yes, I definitely see that. Yeah. I think I, it's, I'm trying to figure out more specifically. It's like when we were speaking about Elisha Ben Avuyad, he had this issue that he looked at, he looked at physical comforts and physical rewards as a certain end on its own, and that that's where not enjoying physical comforts while also being a tzaddik is kind of a. It didn't add up for him, and he had an issue with that. But what I'm trying to understand is that. 
we're also supposed to believe that one of the reasons why we do ideally why Sadiq does get rewarded with physical comforts as world is that at the end of the day physical comforts are the stepping stone to being able to engage in God and, and engage more of your time in that's true. Like that's true. Yeah. Free of sickness. And, right, and that's the, and that is what I. That's what the Rambam says in the end of Hilchot Shuva when he talks about Hashkacha, that the Chazal didn't want. Uh, that really the reason why the Torah promises you all of these material things is not because that's the end, but because it's a means. It's going to enable you to serve Hashem more, and that the Chazal yearned for the Yemot HaMashiach, not because they wanted political power, but because they wanted an environment in which they would be able to learn Torah and do the mitzvot without anybody stopping them and be able to fulfill the Torah the proper way. And that's the right way to look. I think his problem was more on the individual level that he expected, therefore, that uh, that, that would translate. He, 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 it is true that on the individual level, the... Um, the uh, it's like David Melch said, Naraiti Gamzakanti, Velora iti tzadikna ezav, Vezaomevakesh lachem. What does it mean? It means it's extremely rare. It's rare. It doesn't mean it never happens. Naraiti Gamzakanti, Velora iti tzadikna ezav. He doesn't say ve'en. Then Kohelet also says, Kohelet also says, a lot of times the Chacham is in a bad situation. Uh, and and he and he suffers and he loses and all, all but but still what does Kohelet say but still right meaning even so even though in the individual situation sometimes it doesn't work out it usually does because he only says yes there are some situations in which the chacham doesn't succeed most of the time the chacham does succeed most of the time the chacham does have a good life. Most of the time, Chacham makes wise decisions and therefore is in a good position. In the rare situations that he isn't, still being a Chacham is better than being a fool. Um, and those are, uh, those, are the, uh, those are what we call uh, uh, bugs in the system, so to speak, because the system is a material system and functions in, uh, in terms of uh, by laws that are independent of us, so it doesn't always translate into uh, the, the best outcome for an individual in every single situation. But the Chacham is uh, not going to focus on that as their uh, primary concern. The Chacham is not going to focus on that. You know, they're going, first of all, the reason why the Chacham is usually su- successful is, number one, because he has the most realistic expectations for his life, and number two, because he's going to make the wisest decisions. But there's obviously also anomalies in the world where things don't always work out, even with the best plans and even with the best expectations and even with the best. So then, so then uh, still that particular I, plan that he had, and that's part of the idea of tefillah, to realize you have a plan, your plan is, you know, you have a vision of a plan, you, have a, you reflect on your purpose in life, you understand how the different aspects of your different initiatives fit into your pur- purpose in life. Ultimately, shomea tefillah is saying Hash, uh, that uh, you want Hashem to be maskim, that the circumstances should uh, allow for your uh, life plan to be successful. It doesn't always work out. It works out often enough, but it doesn't work out in every case. And sometimes it bumps the person around. Maybe they end up in a better place. And then they say, Baruch Hashem, that Hashem didn't, uh, wasn't maskim to that particular 
uh, initiative and I ended up better in a better position. Other times it's harder to understand, like in the case that Elisha Benavoya is talking about. But the purpose is that at the end of the day, when there's a full-out conflict between the good of Torah innately and the material world's outcomes not supporting or enabling Torah in a particular circumstance, what do you decide? What, are you, what do you decide? According to uh, Elisha Benavuya, the very fact that, that such a phenomenon exists where the material world undermines Torah and, and, and stands in the way and, and doesn't reward Torah the way that it's supposed to is a sign that it's not, it's not really good. It's a sign that it doesn't really work. is recognizing that even if you don't see your situation as quote-unquote working out, the pursuit of wisdom over the course of thousands of years, in the most cases, is going to lead a person to a better situation, even if it doesn't work out for me in this situation this time. Right. Well, first of all, the Chacham is much, much less attached to the specific outcome of any particular situation. That's part of it. You know? That's part of it. Right, he's going to look at this whole life, he's going to look at, okay, so I'm not working in this business, so instead I'm uh, working in the grocery store or I'm driving a bus. Okay, well, that's, that's just the way that I'm paying the bills, but what difference does that make? He doesn't care. Meaning, oh, I'm living in a small place, but I have food and I have a roof over my head and it's this. Uh, I don't care that I don't live in a... He's not going to be focused on the things that would people would say, oh, he lives a bad life. I'm not living a bad life. Yeah, it, most of, that's why the chacham usually will will be happy. The um, the person who is uh, the person who is a uh, but Elisha Benavuya's problem was that he thought that the Torah should corris- that the physical world should correspond with and reward and support the Torah in every case. Deep down, it was because deep down it was because he thought that really that was the that's. The reward for the Torah is the material good. It was the end. The material good. Right. That was really it was because it was the end. If you asked him that, he might say, "No, no, no. You know that that's not true. I enjoy the Torah. I love the Torah. That's why I keep kept learning it, even with Rabbi Meir." But deep down, he thought that without that material reward, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't really all that he thought it was supposed to be. And so it became for him an intellectual pastime, basically. He couldn't disengage from the, uh, from the learning. It became from like an intellectual pastime and a challenge. Um, but he wasn't able to reframe his expectations of what hashkacha pratit should look like based on his understanding. He wasn't able to, to, to reframe it. Hmm? Well, first of all, it seems like he never, he didn't really want to leave it. He just could not find his way back. Because if you look at the Divrei Torah that he gives to Rabbi Meir, they're mostly about the ability of somebody who uh, went off the derech to be able to be restored or the ability of something that's broken to be fixed and all that. He, he keeps making these references to, uh, uh, to things of that nature. And so there, there, he seems like he's at a certain point where he wants to find his way back in, but he can't find it. He can't do it in a way that he, you know, that, that he can't find a, a path back that's satisfying to him. And uh, because he, he sees the good in Torah, he obviously sees the wisdom in it. 
but his preconceived notions about what, that's why he's one of the people who went into Pardes. Why, why is he one of the people who went into Pardes? Because it means he went into these metaphysical speculations about how God's Ashkacha works, and he saw that the material, that it says he saw, you know, this Matatron or whatever, he saw the weird uh, visions of the uh, of uh, angels. The idea is that he saw that the material world and the, um, and the, and the world of Torah don't work in tandem perfectly with one another. And that was what bothered him. And he said, oh, there's shteur shuyot. There's two, uh, two forces. Right? These are different chazals about him. But the idea of shteur shuyot is dividing between the world of the intellect and the world of the material. And that one is not related to the other, really. One is not related to the other. So that could mean one of two things. That could mean because in general it is, but in particular cases it's not. Right? It could be because each one is its own separate and distinct uh, realm. Yeah, and that's, that's, the, that's kind of where he, he leaned in that direction. And uh, he wasn't able to come up with an understanding of Ashkacha that satisfied him that he would be able to re-enter the uh, religious fold, seems like. Exactly what it was, it's hard to know. They just give us hints, you know? Chazal basically, the, the, his other colleagues criticized him for continuing to engage with uh, Elisha ben Avuya. There's all these funny stories that Elisha ben Avuya came and it was Shabbat Shechal Bo Yom Kippurim, or you know, Yom Kippur Shechal Bo Shabbat, and he came on his horse. And Rabbi Meir got up from teaching his students and followed him, you know, all these bizarre. But, but that's again like Shabbat reflects Maseb Bereshit, and Yom Kippur is about, you know, the me, metaphysics. Like all of these things are. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of elements of the story that are, that are pointing to like what the, what the intellectual problems were that Elisha ben Avuya was struggling with. What is the relationship between Hashkacha, between God and the world? What is the relationship between nature and divine providence? What's the, you know, and how can I understand that uh, there's supposed to be a uh, function of Hashkacha and yet it seems to undermine itself and it doesn't, it doesn't reward properly. It doesn't validate the right way of life the way that it should. Um, he followed him because he had a lot to learn from him still. He felt like he could learn a tremendous amount. And it says that it was okay for Rebbe Meir because he took the, uh, he basically took the good and he threw away the uh, bad. Me, implying, and there are a lot of chazals that are really negative on Elisha Benavoya that he went and tried to convert all these people to... I turn all these people against Torah. He went to all these different schools and tried to convince them to turn against God or threaten them or whatever, that he really became anti. Uh, this education is brain... Like a lot of people who fall out of religion, they're like, the education is brainwashing and we have to stop it. And they start trying to oppose it and they try to prevent people from engaging with it and all that, that he became kind of like that in a certain way. Some of the Chazal indicate that. Um, but Rabbi Meir felt that there was much to learn from him. The fact that it says that he threw away the bad must mean that Elisha Benavuya also told him bad. 
Meaning that he, uh, he also told them some of his ideas that were not so good, that the Gemara doesn't uh, record. But Rabbi Meir was able to distinguish between, it's showing you that it, uh, because Rabbi Meir was an independent Chacham in his own right, he could take content separate from the person. Most people learn through a relationship with somebody. So their per, the, the persona of the teacher also infiltrates them to some extent. A person like Rabbi Meir, uh, that's why you see that like a lot of times people will like imitate their teacher or they start to mimic them with their you know, different <laughs> nuances of their you know, uh, idiosyncratic uh, things. Uh, ways of speaking or uh, hand motions or whatever. They will do all those things because they start to identify with the teacher. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a relationship. The Rebbe Meir was at a level where he didn't do that. That's the idea. He was at a level where he only related to the ideas of Elisha ben and Therefore, if there were ideas that he knew were uh, heretical ideas or problematic ideas where the philosophy of Elisha ben was, you know, coming into conflict with the Torah, like his ideas about how the material world should work, or if there's really hashkacha pratit, then why is it not this way and not, why is it this way and not that way? Um, and uh, that it doesn't make any sense that there's hashkacha pratit, or whatever it exactly was that he thought. Um, which seems that he didn't reject the idea of God, seems more that he didn't believe that there was a relationship between hashkacha uh, and, and, and people's behavior something of that nature, that it was two totally different realms, um, that uh, those things he was able to filter out and he was able to learn, obviously enough that he got up on Shabbat, Yom Kippur Shabbat, to follow him on his horse, you know, to learn them. He was gaining that much from his learning with him, that it was worth it to him. But he wasn't going to be subjected, he wasn't, gonna, he wasn't a passive learner where he would end up being shaped by the, uh, the ideas of Elisha ben Avoya that were bad. And in the end, the Chazals say that, you know, he was forgiven or whatever. There was smoke coming out of the grave. There's all these stories, you know, but the idea is that, the idea is that in retrospect, what, I think what, what, what they're saying is that in retrospect, there was a good to him that could be, uh, we, can, we can recognize and we can hold on to the good to him and whatever the bad was, uh, we let it go. That was, you know, that's, that, that's part of the past. That was when he was here and he was having an influence. But in, but, you know, in terms of his legacy, he's mentioned in Pirkei Avot. Elisha ben Avoya, statement from Elisha ben Avoya. So there you go. We take, we didn't throw out, we didn't throw out his, uh, we didn't cancel him. This outlook, <clears throat> so I know, can I go straight into what you were saying, cancel? Does this outlook, should this outlook inform the way you relate to... Rabbanim who, let's say, certain details emerge about a sketchy past or things that are involved in that don't seem to reflect, don't seem to show them the best light. Um, an example that comes up is Karl Bach with his forming Kabbalah Shabbat and having a sketchy personal life. How, and you have those, you have different reactions, you have certain shuls that just won't play his music anymore and other ones that kind of just don't really care. Is it like a, a wise way to live to kind of just separate the deeds, just to separate the bad and just accept the good or is there a point? It's a, hard, uh, it's a hard issue. I mean, I, I think for uh, 
The realm of ideas is always a little bit different than the realm of uh, art. But I think in the... Because uh, most uh, artists and uh, musicians uh, have sketchy pasts and presents. Um, the, uh, the, the question is whether... If the, if the content of the music... See, I, I think like what, what we see from the Chazal is it took them a couple of generations to make peace with Elisha Benavuya was, you know, really was okay. You know, whatever he did wrong was between him and God and, you know, but ultimately he was a person of Tawan. There was value to his Tawan. He taught and we should just recognize that. And I, I suspect that that's what can happen over generations, but it's a lot harder when you're closer to the person, the person generation, and there are still people who were affected by the bad. And therefore, can still will still gravitate to the personality of the uh, of the of the individual. Um, either will respond negatively and be hurt, or will uh, somehow try to uh, whitewash what they did, or somehow or other uh, adhere to the personality of the individual, especially if they're still alive. Um, that's especially dangerous. But but the irony is that at least in America today. The opposite happens. You wait till somebody, till uh, societal norms have changed to the extent that uh, you can't answer them on, on tomorrow's values. Right. Like uh, the way the founding fathers were all. Right. Now they're going. Now they're doing this thing of retroactively judging everybody by standards that didn't even exist in their time. Yeah. It's not really rational. Um, if they did objectively bad things, like let's say Columbus was a bad guy and just like there was all this legend about him being good, but everybody kind of knew that he was bad all along. So like uh, that wasn't really a, a chidush that came out later. That was just something that was suppressed in the name of the legend. Um, in, uh, <clears throat> in, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the, look, music and art, most great musicians and artists have like really sketchy pasts. But what happened is that those pers- their personalities and their persona, their identities, their, they're gone. And nobody is cleaving to their personality. Nobody who was directly impacted by them is around. So we, you know, we leave their legacy as it is. And I think that's kind of what happens with the passage of time. Whatever is good in the legacy of these people will stand the test of time and will be revived when it's, uh, when it's no longer a possibility, when it's basically fully dissociated from the personality that produced it. In the meantime, it's much more complicated. I think that you see from the case of Alicia Benavuya that eventually ideas or eventually art or whatever uh, become dissociated from the personality that uh, produced them because uh, the personality is no longer around and no longer is really impacting anybody. And therefore, you're able to uh, salvage their, the, the, what was good in them for the uh, sake of the benefit of uh, society. Uh, that that seems... It, wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't his personality, it was his ideas. Right, his bad ideas, yeah. His personality too, because it was connected. I mean, the way that they present him is that because underlying his whole relationship to Torah was always this expectation that Hashgachah Pratit worked a certain way, that it would lead to certain material benefits and gains. I don't think he, it's even possible. I, I, don't, I can't say, but it doesn't seem to me possible that he would have thought that there was no innate benefit to Torah. I just think that he also thought that 
it had to correspond as well with the material goods. Meaning, that's the idea that they say about him believing in shteroshuyot. I used to think the, the way that I said before, but I don't think that way anymore because, um, because it's impossible for somebody to be that immersed in Torah not to see any value in it innately. It, it just doesn't seem to be possible. What is possible is that he thought there were two tracks and basically they should correspond to each other and they should, you should be able to have your physical satisfying good life and your Torah life and these two things should always come together and that's how the Hashkacha is supposed to work. And if it doesn't work, well, that means that there's two rishuyot, meaning that there's not there's not really the that that the world of Torah, the world of ideas, the world of God doesn't really relate to the world of human activity and human interest, and therefore it's uh, you know the, the the whole point of observing the mitzvot and and imagining that our activities on earth have some ultimate meaning. It's not true. Maybe our intellectual quest has some meaning, but our activities don't. Because those are in the material world. Something like that would have been his, uh, his philosophy, you know? But it does come from a certain character of attachment to the material things for their own sake. Even if he also, and I assume he must have, seen a benefit in Torah for its own sake, because you see that he continued learning and teaching. And there are people like that. There are people who continue, who leave religion, but they continue with a very strong feeling that there's a value to, uh, to Torah of some, uh, to some level. And they enjoy the ideas of, of Torah. They enjoy learning even if they leave the uh, religious uh, commitment. In their practical life, I mean. There was a story about Rabbi Soloveitchik said that there was like a chemistry professor or something like that that he had in college that one day, who was like an atheist and he walked in on him one day and he was like learning Gemara. And he said, then what are you doing? You're an atheist. And he said, this is a true story. And he said, uh, your, your grandfather ruined my life. Because he taught us Gemara at such a high level. It was so interesting. It was so compelling. Like, I can't stop learning it even though I don't believe in it. Right? So, like, uh, something like that, that the intellectual value is separate from the uh, practical value seems to be Elisha ben I know we kind of, like, I'm keeping it vague because I'm not 100% sure where he stood. I'm just giving, I'm sort of trying to describe it. His idea that there was... A, that there has to be a material benefit to the Torah it doesn't necessarily mean because he didn't think there was any innate value to the intellectual aspect of Torah. It's, it requires more unpacking exactly what he thought, but it's something like that. Something like basically he thought that the learning and the knowledge, yes, that's very valuable, but the but practically, does it actually give you a, a better life? Uh, no. Doesn't actually practically give you a better life because that's in the realm of the material, a good life, and, uh, and it bears no connection to the material life. You know, something like that. You know, I'm, I, I was a little meandering on that point through the shiur because I'm not 100% sure how to formulate it because I don't think Chazal really give a clear understanding, but it's something to that, something to that effect. You know? All right? Okay, so we'll see, see you guys next week. Have a, a meaningful Tisha B'Av and uh, see you hopefully next week. All right.